Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Well, hello, Sherry. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Mike. How are you? I am doing really good. The sun's out. We've had a lot of rain here lately, so it's nice to have the sun poking through in beautiful Florida. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got the sun, blue skies, and I think it's about 45 degrees. Oh, that sounds great. And for our listeners out there, you, you are listening to our guest speaker, <laughs> who I'd like to introduce to you all. Uh, for all of you listening today, Behind the Warrior podcast, we are really excited and very pleased to have Stuart Stu Steinberg with us today. And Stu is an Army EOD Vietnam veteran. He is an attorney. He's a private investigator. He is a veteran advocate. And he is also an author. And there's other things that he has done as well. He has led an amazing life. And Stu, we are so happy to have you here today on Behind the Warrior podcast. Welcome. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So there is uh, so much for us to unpack as you are a man of many accomplishments and you've also, in turn, given so much back in service to our veterans and our families and their and their families. I just like to say thank you so much for that. So well, let's thanks. start. I appreciate that. Absolutely. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up, <laughs> and what led you to join the army? Why the army? <laughs> well, I grew up initially in Washington D.C., which is where I was born. Um, then when I was I don't know, maybe five or six, um, we moved out to uh, suburban Virginia uh, to what was then a little tiny village, I guess you'd say, called Falls Church. (laughs) And it was so rural at that time, um, basically being, you know, just across uh, the Potomac River uh, from D.C., and, uh, um, we, uh, uh, it, it was, like I was saying, it was such a small community that my parents' hardware store was also the post office. Wow. That um, is small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then how I ended up enlisting, well, I went to college in New Mexico in, uh, the fall of 1965 and, uh, and, by the end of the year, uh, had flunked out. And, um, when I got back home, uh, in, uh, I don't know, June of, uh, 1966, I got a draft notice. And, um, back then, uh, as you may be aware, they were drafting people into the Marines. Mm-hmm. Now, I knew I didn't want to be in the Marines because, uh, I, I knew I would end up, you know, being an 0311, an infantryman, uh, and uh, uh, and that wasn't what I wanted. So uh, the night before I enlisted, uh, a friend of mine and I um, went into D.C. and where the drinking age at that time was 18, and uh, we got really, really hammered, <laughs> and. Uh, we woke up in my car, and I don't remember anything uh, uh, pretty much uh, 
you know, after we went into, into DC and, and got drunk, um, we woke up in the car, uh, uh, and, uh, where we had passed out and, uh, decided to go down to, um, Alexandria and, uh, get breakfast, um, at a, at what was then a waffle house. I don't, I don't think it's there anymore. And right across the street from the restaurant were all the recruiters. So, uh, we said, well, let's go enlist. So we did. And, um, what ended up happening was, um, uh, we were basically lied to uh, <laughs> by the recruiter and, uh, uh, and ended up enlisting to be, uh, Knight Hercules missile crewman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, this guy fed us a whole line of crap about how, oh, we'd learn all this stuff about electronics and it would set us up for a civilian job, yada, yada, yada. So um, we went through the uh, uh, enlistment processing station or center, whatever they called it, um, in Richmond, Virginia, and then uh, took the train to uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. So when we got there, uh, they called me and my buddy um, out of formation and and told us that uh, my friend had a medical condition that made him ineligible to enlist. But they told him that um, if he wanted to stay in, uh, there was a very minor, quick surgical procedure that could be done. And... Uh, or he could choose not to have it get done and and be discharged. So he decided uh, he didn't want the surgery, and they discharged him, and there I was by myself. Uh, and eventually ended up at Fort Gordon, Georgia, and that's where I did basic training. When you decided to join the Army, did you do that before you ate at the Waffle House, or was that after you ate? You and your friend. Oh, it was, it was right after we ate. <laughs> okay, I just so you guys were you guys were. Feeling I, I mean, a little... we were still we were still sobering it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what I was wondering. You know? Okay, um, but yeah. Okay, so when you joined the army, um, and now you're by yourself, and you're in the army, and of course you're you're in this different career field. How did you end up becoming an EOD technician? Well. I ended up at this missile base out in the middle of nowhere in the Everglades. And the unit, uh, which was a Knight Hercules battery, um, was uh, made up of, uh, not to be blunt, you know, uh, a uh, sack load of racist anti Semites. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, really terrible. Um, and I knew I had to get the hell out of there. Um, but I couldn't do anything until I had a year in. So just before I had a year in, um, I, I caught the, uh, bus or whatever it was into, um, Eglin Air Force Base. Oh, wait a minute. It wasn't Eglin. It was, um, oh, hell. Indian Head? Was it in Indian Head? No, no, no. This was in Florida. Oh. Anyway. And I ended up going to see the uh, career counselor and told him, um, yeah, this is not 
doing anything for me. I'm not learning anything, you know, because basically what the job was, uh, you know, push the missiles out of the barns, uh, clean them, uh, check out uh, the electronics, and push them back in the barn. And that was it. Um, the only other thing was, you know, we had to pull guard duty, and, and 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 that turned out to be another reason why I had to get the hell out of there. Because I got a thing, I got into a thing with one of these racist pieces of shit uh, who basically, you know, I mean, they knew I was Jewish, and the guy, the guy accused me of killing Jesus. <laughs> so. Uh, when I met with the career counselor and I told him, you know, I don't really have an idea of, you know, what I actually want to do. And he said to me, well, what would you think about uh, explosive ordnance disposal? And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, it's a bomb squad. And my response was, well, why the hell would I want to do that? <laughs> and, uh, and, and he said to me, well, for one thing, um, you'll get a, an extra $55 a month for hazardous duty pay. Well, at that time I was a PFC and I think I was making like $90 and 70 cents a month. Yeah. So after taxes and social security and the savings bond, which of course we were all pretty much forced to get, uh, um, I, uh, uh, after taxes and, and whatever, I think I only, I only had about 50 bucks. So the hazardous duty pay was more than I was actually getting. Right. And, and, and then, you know, he, he had this, you know, big book of all the MOSs and whatnot. And he said, not only that, if you graduate, you'll get to wear this really cool badge. And, you know, I looked at the badge and thought, well, that's pretty cool. So I reenlisted. I had to take another year. Um, because yeah, you had to have four years at that time to go to EOD school. And um, I uh, uh, got a $1,000 bonus. And I was gone the next day. Um, went home on leave. And then eventually ended up at Fort McClellan um, in Alabama, uh, which um, at that time is where they ran the chemical... Uh, biological uh, weapons school. Um, I think we were there for maybe three weeks. And um, and then, you know, when we finished that, uh, we went to Indian Head. And then uh, after, upon graduating uh, from Indian Head, uh, not too long after that, you shipped off to Vietnam, and you were there no, from uh, no. six... Oh, you had some time? No, after I graduated, mm -hmm. um, which was January of 67, um, and the guy who was kind of my best friend in school, uh, including, uh, you know, from McClellan, a guy named Tom Brown from Akron, Ohio, um, uh, we ended up in Indian Head uh, together. And when we graduated, we both got orders for Dugway Proving Grounds which is out in the middle of nowhere in the Utah desert. Uh, part of it actually backs up to the Bonneville Swamp Slides. 
Um, and um, it was basically an R&D slot where uh, they would develop some kind of new weapon system, you know, and uh, uh, involving, you know, chemical or biological weapons. Uh, and um, uh, when they would, when they would test some new device, there would eventually be uh, a problem. Mm-hmm. So our job was to figure out what that what was causing that problem and figure out how to disarm it or dispose of it or, you know, whatever. Um, so, uh, I, uh, I, 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 I didn't like it. I mean, we were, I don't know, a hundred and something miles from Salt Lake city. You had to go over the mountains and through this really, uh, nasty mountain pass. Um, and if the weather was bad, uh, I'm talking about snow, a lot of snow. It was a really dicey trip mm-hmm. if you wanted to go into town. And then, uh, so I got there in January of 67 or 68. And in March, on March the 13th, 1968, um, an F4 that was carrying a new type of dispenser system for nerve gas malfunctioned over a sheep ranch and dropped a ton of sarin uh, uh, on the sheep ranch. Mm. And um, it killed everything. You know, everything, anything that had a central nervous system. Uh, uh, so, you know, how you've heard these stories about how cockroaches can survive a nuclear blast. Right. Well, they, they can't survive nerve gas because they got a central nervous system. So everything, and I mean everything that was exposed, you know, birds, uh, lizards, snakes, all the sheep, uh, the sheep herders, horses, their dogs were all dead. And the only reason the sheep herders uh, uh, survived is because for some weird reason, this happened on a Thursday, March the 13th, 1968. And it happened, that, and that was their day off. Why? No. They were either they were Albanians or Romanians. Or, I don't know. They were from somewhere in Eastern Europe. Um, so um, we ended up going in and uh, making a determination that uh, this land was going to be contaminated for a long time. And uh, what eventually happened was um, the engineers came in. Oh yeah. And when we went in, of course we were wearing, you know, hazmat suits, uh, which at that time were made from butyl rubber and they weren't exactly totally safe you know you had to use duct tape to <clears throat> tape your legs bottoms to your boots and uh, around the outside to your gas masks so what ended up happening was the engineers came in with these roam plows and they dug this huge huge pit I mean it was a couple hundred yards long 
it was like the size of a couple of football fields yeah. and maybe, I don't know, a hundred feet deep. And what they did was, is they pushed all of, uh, the surface, uh, in this area where the nerve gas had been dropped into this pit. And then we brought in thousands. And I mean, literally thousands of tires old used tires uh, that came, you know, from the proving grounds. And then we um, dumped in, I don't know, thousands of gallons of jet fuel. Um, and uh, and then we used uh, C4, deck cord, tied it all together, uh, got back, hell, I don't know. We, we must have been at least a half a mile away. Um, and set it off. And, um, it, uh, 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 it basically, it burned everything that was in the pit. And then they covered it up and they put a big fence around it and said, this area is off limits. Don't come in here, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So the day that we were done, um, and after we got debriefed and there was a team there from uh, a team of scientists, uh, researchers, whatever they were. I think they came from Stanford. And so we were being debriefed and basically we're told that uh, we weren't there, it didn't happen, and uh, we couldn't talk about it. Um, and um, of course we were told when we were going in, we couldn't take any pictures. Well, I completely ignored that. I had a little tiny brownie codomatic, whatever it was. And um, as far as I know, outside of the government, I had the only picture of uh, uh, some of the dead sheep. And um, uh, yeah. Um, and then that night, uh, three of us, my buddy Tom Brown and another good friend of mine, Danny Lewis, um, who's still in it. And I haven't had any contact with Tom since I got out. Uh, yeah, but Danny and I uh, are both members of the National EOD Association. So, you know, we typically see each other every year at our convention, but, you know, we didn't have it this year because of the virus and everything. Yeah. So, We went to the enlisted men's club and got hammered. And the next morning, we all went to personnel and uh, 1049 uh, volunteered uh, for Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, we just ended up deciding we had to get the hell out of there yeah. um, because we stupidly believed that we'd be better off facing the Viet Cong and the NVA than it being at this place where they constantly had these accidents. Yeah. Um, and and in the nerve gas business, uh, you know, was one of several screw ups uh, that happened uh, while I was there. And so, so you thought you'd take your on, chances in Vietnam? Yeah, so yeah. I went home on leave in mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, <clears throat> in late July or early August of '68, uh, and. Uh, 
and arrived in Vietnam on September the fourth, nineteen sixty-eight. Wow! And uh, you were in you were in Vietnam from sixty-eight to seventy, so you you served longer than the usual twelve-month. Yeah, tour. I was I was there almost nineteen months. Yeah, God, um, you had a long one. When when my original tour uh, was close to being up, um, I started out with a team and in Quinyan. It was the EOD section of the 184th Ordnance Battalion, which now, the 184th, is an EOD battalion. Um, and I think it has five companies. Uh, and uh, I was I was there from September to July, September 68 to July 69, and <clears throat> I extended. Um, I decided to stay for another six months. So I ended up being uh, eventually transferred up to the 25th, which was in on which was the main base camp of the 4th Infantry Division and some elements of the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And um, and while I was there, um, in November of uh, 69, happened to be my day at the unit to take calls and you know, send out two-man teams to deal with whatever came in. And what, what, uh, we got a call from our control team, uh, which was down in uh, near Saigon in Longden. And uh, they said they were looking for someone to volunteer to go north uh, to the team that was in Fubai. And I said, well, well, I've been in the other three corps. Um, I actually had been TDY down in the Delta for a couple of months. And uh, I said, well, hell, I'll go. Um, and that's how I ended up in the 287th. Um, and so from November to 69 till late March of 70, um, I was in this, in this team in Northern I-Corps. Uh, we were about 50 clicks from the DMZ and, uh, we spent a lot, we actually lived with uh third marine force recon um and uh <laughs> which was kind of our way of staying away from the army um we kept <laughs> having these we kept having these weirdos from the 101st um uh, who tried to inspect us and of course if you didn't have a top secret uh, nuclear weapons design, CNDWI is what they call it, critical nuclear weapons design information. If you didn't have that clearance, you could not enter our building mm-hmm. because we had all of these classified publications, including publications about nuclear weapons. Um, and uh, <laughs> so that five months, um, they were the best five months of my tour. I mean, I had great friends and still do from the other teams I was on. But there was something really special about that team. Yeah. And, um, and fortunately, um, many of those guys are still alive. Um, we've lost a couple. Uh, and, uh, but yeah. What, uh, so that was my, that was my time in Vietnam. What, what, what one story sticks out to you from your time there in Vietnam? Well, that would be what I wrote about in the first chapter of my book. Um, there was a small fire base 
it was kind of, I think it was southwest of Fubai. Uh, it was in the mountains, and uh, it was called Fire Support Base Rifle. And on the night of uh, February or January the 27th, 1970, they got overrun, and there was a pitched battle uh, between the 101st and uh, I think it was the 312th Artillery Battalion, um, and there was a Vietnamese unit there. Um, uh, so uh, after it was over, you know, we got the call to go in and to clean it up. And uh, when we landed, actually, and it's where the title of my book comes from, we were <clears throat> circling getting ready to land and uh, you could see the devastation and you could see bodies um, American and NVA and uh, I turned to my friend Paul Duffy um, <clears throat> we we talked probably you know <clears throat> or email each other you know every week and uh, I turned to him and said man this is what fucking hell looks like. Um, and that became the title of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, it was a friggin' nightmare. Um, when we landed, it's almost as soon as we landed, um, we started taking incoming ground fire. So, you know, we're just getting off the helicopter and all of a sudden we're in the middle of this huge firefight. And <clears throat> what had happened is, the 101st had sent a patrol and they were ambushed and, and, and that's when all the shooting started. So, um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Rifle, rifle is one of two or three significant events that, um, yeah, that, uh, I still, um, have bad memories of, I yeah. guess you could say. Yeah. Well, I know that was, uh, I cannot even imagine what that was like, but uh, thank you for, for sharing that with us. Yeah. Stu, after the war, um, you decided to become a lawyer. What inspired you oh. to, to become a lawyer? How did you come to that <laughs> profession? <laughs> That's a pretty funny story. Um, at the time, um, before I went to law school, I was living in a house in D.C. with six or seven other people, um, including the woman uh, who eventually became my second wife and is the mother of my son. And uh, <clears throat> two of the guys that lived in the house, one white guy, one black guy, were going to Howard University's law school, which was almost right across the street from our house. <clears throat> so we were sitting around one night uh, getting really stoned. And one of them, I can't remember if it was Bruce or John, said, hey, dude, you should think about going to law school. And I said, uh, well, how would I go about doing that? And they said, well, you got to take the law school aptitude test. And it turned out it was being given the next day 
at George Mason University. So they said, you should just go down there because there will be seats that will open up because people won't show up. So I did. In fact, I got stoned on the way. <laughs> so I ended up taking the LSAT. I scored really high. Um, and he ended up applying to, oh, uh, the University of Puget Sound, um, American University, uh, Franklin Pierce, uh, I don't know, a couple others. And <clears throat> my wife and I were uh, taking a trip up to Vermont uh, to see some friends. And on the way back, uh, uh, we saw the uh, exit for Concord. So we decided, well, let's go check out this Franklin Pierce. <clears throat> so what ended up happening was, um, I was, I, first of all, I was the first Vietnam vet to go there. And uh, they offered me a scholarship uh, for my first year. So I decided, well, I can't say no to that. And and I ended up, yeah, going to Franklin Pierce and graduating in 1980. Mm -hmm. And at some point, about maybe February or March of 1980, um, one of my professors said that he and the dean wanted to talk to me. And so I'm thinking to myself, oh, Christ, what the fuck did I do? <laughs> and, uh, I was kind of a rabble rouser. We uh, started a law school chapter of the National Lawyers Guild, which is the left wing of the bar in the United States. And uh, so I thought, oh, I must, have, I must have insulted somebody or something. I don't know. So I went in to meet with them, and they asked me what I would think about applying for a graduate teaching fellowship at Georgetown. And I said, well, that might be cool. So I went down there and I was interviewed. I got back and a couple of weeks later, uh, they called me and said they were offering me this fellowship. So I ended up at Georgetown uh, for two years, uh, working in one of the clinical programs um, where uh, what I was doing was working with law students, a different set of law students each semester uh, uh, on uh, uh, dealing with issues involving uh, active duty military people and, and veterans. And a lot of what we did were things like discharge upgrades, uh, board of corrections petitions. Uh, I tried a couple of court martials uh, that the law students helped me with. And uh, and ended up, they were paying us about maybe thirteen thousand a year. <laughs> so instead of giving us more money, they let us <clears throat> work on an advanced law degree. So <clears throat> we ended up getting a master's in law, mm -hmm. uh, specializing in administrative procedures, and uh, yeah, graduated. In, I don't know May of. 82 and and we went back to New Hampshire well that's pretty cool um, I love that yeah. they you know maybe the salary wasn't so great but I, I like the fact that they offered you 
you know, further education in exchange for your time and talent as an attorney. So I think that's that's pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, Stu, before uh, I want to ask you this question, but I just want to recap something real quick because I know we're we have a, you know not a whole lot of time on the podcast, but uh, I want to point out something to our listening audience that I just find so incredibly fascinating about your your life and and what you've done for veterans. Uh, you actually started helping Vietnam veterans back in the late seventies as a veteran service yeah, advocate. I, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. While well, I was at Franklin Pierce, um, in my second year, um, there was another vet who we became friends with. He wasn't a Vietnam vet, but he was a Vietnam era vet. Uh, his name was John W. Lewis. Um, the last time I checked, I think he was general counsel to the uh, New Hampshire legislature. And um, along with one of our professors, we started a clinical program. And it was the first clinic at Franklin Pierce. <clears throat> and we did uh, discharge upgrades border correction stuff, social security claims. And in at some point in 78, uh, during my second year of law school, um, well, Vietnam Veterans of America had just been organized. And I was a founding member. Um, I think I'm number 394 or something like that. And, and then the VA accredited Vietnam Veterans of America. So I became the second VVA service officer. And that was 78. And, uh, you know, I kind of been, you know, doing that kind of work uh, off and on uh, uh, since 78. And uh, after I retired as a capital defense investigator, uh, in early 2005, I got back into doing it pretty much full-time and have been doing it full-time uh, for the last 15 years. Yeah, and, and the work you've done, I know, has impacted countless thousands of veterans in a positive way and their families. And uh, just want to point that out, uh, an incredible decade's worth of service to veterans, and thank you so much yeah. for doing that. Um, I know it's made a difference not only as, as a veteran service officer, but uh, you've also trained many lawyers in how to help veterans appeal discharges and, and decisions. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I know it's, it's just been an amazing, your, your life's work. Um, I want to talk about something, another interesting aspect to you, because uh, you know many people might have done one of the careers in a life, and you have done many. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I, so I want to pivot to this next one. Uh, so you practiced law for many years after graduating, and then you became a licensed private investigator. Is there uh, any, why, why did you become a private eye, and uh, what, what, what case well, do you want to share with us? In, during my second and third years of law school, I worked as an investigator for one of the big criminal defense firms um, in the Concord area, and, um, and I really liked it. Um, and I was really good at it. Uh, so in, uh, in 89, uh, by 1989, after I'd I'd been working mainly as a public defender uh, for, I don't know, seven or eight years, um, I literally woke up one day and realized that this was not what I wanted to do. Um, I was, 
I was really good at, 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 at doing what I did. And I guess part of what uh, caused me to realize I didn't want to be a public defender anymore was that um, um, I put a lot of bad guys back on the street. Um, you know, if I took a case to trial, I took it to trial because I knew I could win. And, uh, and I just realized that this was not what I wanted to do. So I literally, uh, packed up all of my shit, uh, wrote a letter to the bar and told them I was quitting. Uh, and, uh, and I ended up, you know, packing everything I could into my car and I headed West. My initial uh, plan was to end up <clears throat> in Sacramento, where my parents and I had moved, along with two of my sisters. And <clears throat> I'm going across Michigan, and I just happened to look up and see the exit for Traverse City. And I had a really good friend from law school that lived there. So I thought, well, I'll go up to Traverse City and see what Catherine's up to. And, um, and while I was there, I decided to stay and I was clerking, uh, for her and I ended up meeting a, 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 a Michigan investigator, um, Vietnam vet and a medically retired. Uh, he'd been, a, he was a force recon guy, got shot up pretty bad. And we ended up uh, going into business together and, uh, uh, we had a contract uh, with the state to do indigent, indigent defense uh, investigations in homicide cases. And uh, <clears throat> we also had a collections license. So we did high-end repossessions, um, expensive cars, boats, planes. Steve was a pilot. So we actually repossessed planes. Um, and, uh Yeah. <laughs> That must have been uh, kind of tricky to repossess a plane. In the <laughs> and middle exciting of the night. too. <laughs> well, yeah, there were there were a couple of the repos that uh, <laughs> were, yeah, quite interesting. Um, <laughs> we had one where uh, I had snatched this truck from this guy, and it was the middle of winter. It was snowing like crazy, and as I'm Grabbing this truck, uh, we had a, a record. We, uh, it had a drop-down boom, so when you were driving down the street, you couldn't tell it was a record. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so <clears throat> I had tried to get this guy to just give me the truck. It actually belonged to his son, and he wouldn't give it to me. So I basically went in and stole it. And I'm going down this guy's relatively long driveway in essentially a blizzard and here comes this guy chasing me with a shotgun and he was naked <laughs> <laughs> he was running after me in this blizzard start naked <laughs> so i called the cops and, and by the time i got to the end of the driveway uh the sheriff's office was there they arrested this guy and uh <laughs> i towed the truck back to our place and we eventually took it to one of the auctions and sold it. 
So definitely not something you want to spend a long career in. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's pretty risky. Yeah. Risky yeah. business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and fortunately, uh, through Steve, I ended up meeting my wife. Um, uh, and we were married in 94, so we've been together, I guess, 26 years now. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, well, Stu, in the in the mid two thousands, you actually helped start Central Oregon Veterans Outreach. Can you share what their mission is and how it's grown over the years, and and what you're doing today to still help veterans in in Oregon? Yeah. Um, well, Covo got started when one of our founders. Uh, a former Marine vet, uh, Jim Gunn, uh, had started on his own going out to some of the homeless camps um, out here in the high desert. Um, we have dozens and dozens of homeless camps. And a fair number of the people in these camps were vets. And Jim had started going out there uh, taking, oh God, uh, propane tanks, uh, firewood, um, uh, cold weather clothing, uh, stuff like that. And, um, I was, I'm trying to think. I, I, I can't remember exactly, uh, yeah, I, I think I was basically doing nothing. Um, I had retired uh, from being an investigator mm -hmm. in January of uh, 2005. And uh, Jim and I knew each other because we both live in the same uh, community. Uh, it's called Crooked River Ranch. And one of the reasons that we live here, one of the reasons that Jim and his wife live there, is because we're horse people. And there's a lot of horse people here. And <clears throat> one day I was over at Jim's and he said, you know, we need to do something about this homeless thing. So <clears throat> I called a bunch of other uh, Vietnam vets that I knew around the area. Uh, some of whom's claims I had handled and others who I knew through our chapter of Vietnam Veterans of America. So <clears throat> we met in this tiny little office at what was then the uh, uh, Ben Senior Center. And that's that's how Covo began. Um, we eventually moved into <clears throat> a bigger office space and eventually even bigger than that. And uh, we decided uh, to start a transitional housing program where we would uh, get homeless vets, uh, most of whom had addiction issues, mental health issues, post-traumatic stress disorder, and we would uh, get them back on their feet and, and get them back into the community. So um, one of the founders, um, she's a was an Army nurse in Vietnam, retired lieutenant colonel, and Ann and I wrote a grant uh, uh, for HUD money uh, from the city of Bend 
in Deschutes County. And we ended up getting it. So there we were with $250,000. And so we bought this house. Mm-hmm. And things just kind of took off from there. I mean, Covo's now uh, owns property, homes, condos, apartments, um, all over Central Oregon. And uh, for instance, they own a triplex, um, which is for uh, women vets who had kids, um, uh, but who were no longer married. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, there are group homes uh, in Bend, uh, in Lapine, in Prineville, in Madras. Um, and uh, so Covo has kind of become a, a behemoth. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of its holdings. And uh, it's really, really something I'm really proud of. As you should be, and everyone else involved. Um, thank you for all the help that you provide to um, homeless veterans in your state there. Stu, from uh, 2009 and 2010, uh, you went on another adventure you went to work with the United Nations in Afghanistan. Yeah. What, yeah. What did you do and uh, what was the impact of your work there? Well, um, one of my good friends at the time and still a good friend, uh, was running this, uh, counter narcotics program, uh, for the UN office on drugs and crime. And uh, he had, uh, after I had, got him hooked up uh, with his VA benefits. Um, he had been in Afghanistan uh, uh, as a special operations guy. He led a team of uh, uh, Green Berets, Army Rangers, and British SAS guys, and they were doing uh, counter-narcotics interdiction operations along the Iranian border. Um, so I was at Kovo. I think it was March of 2009 and I'm sitting at my desk and I, I get this phone call uh, uh, and I'm looking at the number and there's like, I don't know, 12 numbers. And I'm thinking, who the hell is this? Well, it was Tony (laughs) and he was calling me from Afghanistan and he said, I need some help here. I need some administrative help. Uh, Tony can't write. He just can't write. Uh, and uh, so initially he asked me to come over and be the administrative manager of this program because uh, there were tons and tons of reports that had to be done. And, you know, you had to you know talk about, you know, the operations and this, that and the other. So anyway, so I got to Afghanistan in uh, November of uh, 2009 and, uh, uh, and ended up um, not doing well. I was still doing administrative stuff, but then Tony decided that um, I should get involved in uh, working with uh, the Border Police Brigade uh, that we were working with at the time. And uh, so I ended up in Herat which is in northwest Afghanistan. It's about 100 clicks from the Iranian border. And uh, we worked with uh, 
the command staff and the NCO cadets uh, uh, on uh, doing counter-narcotics operations. And I was teaching classes in improvised explosive devices, ordnance identification, uh, tactical convoy movement, searches of people, places, and things. And we uh, helped uh, develop intel. Um, we spent a fair amount of time with these local tribesmen called the Kuchi. And uh, we would go out to one of their camps um, and, and, and meet with their elders. And we would ask them, <clears throat> what do you need? What do you want? If you could have anything you want, what would it be? <laughs> and you know what they said? What? You want better cell phone service. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to Christ, I thought they would say they wanted a well. Well, And that eventually, we worked with the Italians and eventually did drill them a new well. It went down like 3,000 feet. Wow. Um, and uh, this was uh, kind of up in the mountain plateaus. And, uh, uh, and by working with them, um, they would give us intel because they knew everything that was going on. Mm -hmm. So they would give us intel about smugglers. And what we would do is we would, you know, plan this interdiction operation. And, you know, we'd set up uh, where we knew smugglers are going to be coming through. And uh, we would stop them and arrest them and seize the drugs. Um, so, yeah. And I did that until July um, of uh, 2010. Wow. I can imagine that uh, the work that you did definitely helped the Afghanistan uh, border security folks do a better job of taking care of their borders and, uh, and, yeah. and plus become a more well, professional force. You know, um, we, uh, uh, things actually were pretty good mm -hmm. until my last month. And I was actually getting ready to sign another contract, uh, for another six months. And <clears throat> during that last month, um, they, uh, the bad guys, uh, tried to kill us a couple of times, mm -hmm. um, with improvised explosive devices. Mm -hmm. um, the first one, uh, <clears throat> they had actually set, uh, to get the chief of police, uh, of Herat because he was really death on smuggling. Mm -hmm. And we actually drove over this device. But they were waiting for the chief's convoy, so they didn't set it off. <clears throat> the second one was planted in the road on one of our routes out to the border police base. And <clears throat> what happened there was a uh, good citizen uh, just happened to be out on his balcony and watched uh, these smugglers plant this IED in the road. You know, it was a paved road. And, you know, so they dug up a piece of the pavement, planted the rice, put the pavement back down. So when they left, he walked down the street to an Afghan uh, security cops uh, uh, outpost. Uh, <clears throat> they brought in the Spanish EOD team and, uh, and they took care of this thing. So 
Yeah. Hmm. Well, that sounds um, pretty scary, Stu. And um, it uh, was. Yeah. It was a very. It was a very fulfilling job. Mm-hmm. I know that in the overall scheme of things. You know, I think while I was there, we seized maybe, I don't know, a thousand kilos of uh, heroin mm. and raw opium. Wow. And it was basically one-tenth of one percent of all the drugs that were seized that year. Mm. But to me, it meant that um, we had saved lives yes. because by taking these drugs off the street, sure. you know, they wouldn't end up in someone's arm. Yeah, for sure. Well, Stu, you have lived an incredible life. And right. if um, all of the before mentioned wasn't enough, in 2018, you published a book entitled This Is What Hell Looks Like. You, yeah. You mentioned it earlier when we were talking about your experience in, in Vietnam. And um, can you tell our audience why you wrote the book and um, the effect that it had on you and, and what you hope your readers will take away from it. Well, um, I had actually been working on a different book. And that was a book that was based on my years as a capital defense investigator. And mm-hmm. that was, I was an investigator that worked on death penalty cases. And in Oregon, uh, you had to be approved by the state Supreme Court, um, either the lawyers that did the cases or the investigators. And um, I ended up working with uh, a couple of attorneys that did capital work and uh, became their uh, became their investigator. Um, the book I was working on was actually based on a sort of compilation of several of the capital cases I worked on. And I was probably halfway through it when I realized that this was really what I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, this wasn't what I wanted to write about. And, and, and that's kind of how I decided, well, I'm going to write a book about my life in EOD and particularly my, 18 plus months uh, in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And um, when I wrote the first draft, it had a different title. Um, I think I initially just called it Vietnam. And one of my buds uh, was and actually still is a VA client who's a retired Green Beret, and I asked him to read the draft. So I give it to him. And, of course, the first chapter is about rifle and, you know, where I, you know, said to Paul Duffy, this is what hell looks like. And Greg calls me up and says, dude, this is your title. (laughs) This is what hell looks like. And I was really fortunate in that um, as my work as a a veterans advocate, I learned that the National Archives um, had records of a lot of shit 
that I was involved in in Vietnam. And, 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 and in particular, in an EOD team in Vietnam, you had a daily incident log. And, you know, it began at 0000 and ended at 2400. And each incident was logged in, you know, what it was, where it was, who went, um, how much drive time, how much air time. And the air time thing was important because once you got a certain number of air hours, you you got an air medal, um, which I never got because I didn't keep track of my air miles. And, and, um, so, uh, I was able to recover incident logs and in particular unusual reports when you had a call that was particularly weird or danger, really bad, um, and involved usually being in the bush somewhere, these unusual reports some of them, when I read them, I had a, no active memory of these events. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one case in particular, and I think I told you about this when we first talked, I get this three-page report back about this thing that my then CEO and I had gone on that ended up being really bad mm-hmm. in terms of contact with the enemy and whatever. So I get done reading this thing and I'm thinking, I got no memory of this. And I called up my then CEO, Andy Breland, who unfortunately took his own life a few years ago. Um, and, um, mm. and, I, and I said, here, I want to read you something. So I read him this whole thing. And I said, do you remember this? He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I said, well, that's pretty funny, man, because you wrote this report and signed it. (laughs) (laughs) And my theory about this is that um, you can only retain so much bad shit. Mm -hmm. Um, And you get to a point where, uh, for lack of a better uh, term, I guess, you, you forget you forget things. Mm-hmm. You, could, you can only retain so much bad stuff. Yeah. Well, what do you hope that um, folks will take away? The, the folks that read your book, what do you hope they take away from that? Well, uh, I guess um, I want people who read it to try to get a basic understanding of what it was really like, you know, to Vietnam, to be in Vietnam on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, you know, I, I yeah, I, I want, I want people who read it, uh, you know, to realize um, what, uh, someone who was in Vietnam in a combat position, um, what it was like mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis, um, how uh, dangerous it was 
and how funny it was sometimes and how bad it was sometimes. Um, yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, with all of your experience and service to others, um, Stu, what stands out in your mind that you feel is important for our listeners to know about why you chose a life of service to our nation's veterans? Um, well, uh, pretty much from the time I enlisted when I was uh, just 18 um, until now, um, I've devoted my life to public service. Um, and I think it probably has something to do with um, my parents. Um, my parents were uh, progressive Democrats. They were <laughs> they were Eugene McCarthy delegates uh, to the '68 convention, and and I was in Vietnam uh, when the convention occurred, and uh, and obviously it ended up uh, being. I think it was Hubert Humphrey against uh, Richard Nixon. And I'm embarrassed to say, or maybe it was George McGovern. I don't remember who the Democrat was, but I, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say, voted for Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, uh, my parents um, were always involved in, I guess you'd say liberal Democrat politics or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I guess I, you know, just uh, decided to do the things I did uh, because uh, they were they were the right things to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, they sound like um, very strong role models. Um, yeah. And um, you know, I, I think it's awesome when children um, find inspiration from their parents and and feel like they can make a difference too. So yeah. that's fantastic. Stu, uh, I'm I'm really really glad that you came on and talked with us today because I find uh, your life again very fascinating and just your service to veterans so inspiring. Uh, many veterans are listening to us today. And do you have any uh, last words of advice or wisdom that you would like to share with the veteran community that's listening today? Yeah, um, if you think you have medical issues that relate to your military service. Um, You need to get in touch with a service officer, someone like me or another Vietnam Veterans of America service officer or service officers from the VFW, the American Legion, DAV, uh, the Order of the Purple Heart, of which I'm a member. Um, and, And you need to, you know, seek these benefits because you earned them. Mm-hmm. You're entitled to them. The law gives them to you. And, you know, even today I get calls or referrals from uh, vets who don't even know what they're entitled to mm-hmm. after 50 years. Yeah. And it's particularly true with vets who have post-traumatic stress disorder. They um, don't want to 
um, they want to don't want to have to deal with the issues about why they have PTSD. And um, I explained to them, it's a normal reaction to being exposed to serious traumatic events. Um, and uh, if those events happened, you know, to someone walking down the street, um, they would still be traumatic. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with admitting that. Um, you know, <clears throat> once you're diagnosed and rated, um, it's all, it, it's secret. There's no way anyone can get access to that information. <clears throat> and having PTSD, for instance, does not affect your Second Amendment rights. I mean, <clears throat> I've got PTSD and I've also got guns. Um, and uh, so that's what I guess I would say to vets. If you think you've got a problem that relates to your military service, do something about it. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I can't agree with you more. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, I had a uh, uncle who served in Vietnam yeah, he was in the Navy, and he contacted me about five years before he passed away, and he asked me about uh, going to a VSO and said, do you think I can get benefits? I'm like, man, I thought you did this years ago. He's like, no. And uh, he went to his county VSO, and he was very quickly awarded 100% for his uh, time and service in Vietnam. He also had PTSD a lot of issues, so uh, I, I was very grateful for that. But but you're yeah. you're very correct in saying that many wait way too long so if you're out there listening please don't wait if you are a veteran yeah and you serve and yeah and of course you know if you've got one of the uh agent orange presumptive illnesses um yeah yeah he did you need, you need mm -hmm. to seek benefits for that and i think i think that's what uh that was his large one there was uh the agent orange exposure um, yeah. So, yeah, thanks for saying that, too. But definitely yeah. get, get seen. See a VSO. Mm -hmm. All right. All right, Stu. Um, I think we're going to go into one more segment. This is the one we like to have a little bit of fun with you. It's called <laughs> Tell Us a Little Bit About Your Favorites. So we're going to start it off with what is your favorite food you like to eat or cook? Um. Probably Chinese stuff. I like to make. I make a lot of stir fry. Um, I love stir fry. Yeah, we do too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of do. The, I kind of do the cooking um, and the grocery shopping, and uh, um, so yeah, I, I, I would say you know, stir fry. Um, the other night, I made this uh, <clears throat> really great <clears throat> chicken and broccoli with a lot of. Uh, um, uh, a lot you know, ginger mm -hmm. and uh, um, it turned out to be really tasty. Okay, we're coming to your house for dinner next week, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing that we had lunch before we called you. I would be hungry. I'd be off this yeah. headset right now. Um, what is your favorite relaxation method? What does Stu do to unwind after a rough day? Uh, oh, probably, um, you know, because of the virus and everything. Um, I have subscriptions to Netflix, Hulu, mm -hmm. uh, Amazon Prime, uh, Apple TV, Disney Plus, 
uh, HBO Max, CBS All Access. <clears throat> so, um, I, I like to watch movies, and uh, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> and I listen to a lot of music. Um, I'm a metalhead, <laughs> so uh, I listen to a lot of metal. And right now, I've gotten into these. Um, melodic metal bands from Germany and Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. Bands like Gamma Ray and Hammerfall, Blind Guardian, uh, just terrific, terrific music. Very mm -hmm. complex. I'm also a musician, so um, I really appreciate what these bands can do. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I do at the end of the day. I love that uh, you like that heavy metal music. I do too. So that is awesome. Yeah. Never, never too old <laughs> yeah. to rock on, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you're a bass player, correct, Stu? Yeah. Okay. Well, the last the last band I was playing with, <clears throat> I was actually singing. Okay. And um, but yeah, law school and after law school, the bands I played in, yeah, I played bass. I did some singing. But mostly played bass. Cool. That is awesome. And and Stu, I got one more for you. So, um, I would imagine that you've traveled pretty extensively around the world. And so, with that in mind, has is there any one place that kind of sticks out to you that surprised you, and you you were like, man, I really like that, and I'd love to go see that again. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I guess I'd probably have to say Vietnam. Um, I went back in 2012. Oh, wow. <clears throat> with a very small group, uh, five vets, <clears throat> and a widow who also was from Oregon. Mm -hmm. Her husband uh, was on his third tour. He was a gunship pilot who shot down. And uh, it was... Uh, it was an amazing trip. Mm -hmm. um, the places we visited were places <clears throat> where when you were applying to be in this program, they wanted you to list three places that if you could visit them, you would want to. And, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I was really fortunate. The three places that I picked were places that we went. Mm. And um, they were so different now that, um, like, one of the places we went to was Tainan City, which was basically up on the Cambodian border. And when I was TDYing the Delta uh, in late 68 for a couple of months, uh, we ran a lot of calls in and around Tainan. <clears throat> and at that time, it was basically like a village of shacks, dirt roads. When we went back in 2012, it had become an actual city and streets were paved and, you know, people were out and about doing things because they weren't worrying about the VC or the MVA. Um, it was quite, quite something. Yeah. And the trip ended in Hanoi where we actually ended up meeting with their top scientists and military people hmm. around the uh, herbicide issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was quite, uh, quite 
profound. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. uh, and we had been to <clears throat> a group facility in Saigon um, where there were young people mostly who were deformed mm -hmm. because of Agent Orange. Mm, wow. And I'll never forget, there was this one young man <clears throat> who basically had no face. Mm. Um, uh, couldn't talk. Uh, he was deaf. He was blind. Um, he had no ears. Um, it was it was horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, Stu, we actually um, several years ago um, worked with an organization called um, Warriors Heart. Not Warriors Heart. No? A Soldier's Heart. Soldier's Heart. That's right. Soldier's Heart out of New York. Yeah. They were based out of New York. Are you familiar well, with that work? That's who I went to Vietnam. Uh, I was just Doctor Ed, Ed Tick. Yeah. Ed Tick. Yeah, yeah, he's a good friend yeah. of ours. Yeah, and I'll tell you how that ended up happening. My uh, retired Green Beret buddy um, was <clears throat> at the time uh, he had gotten his counseling degree, and he was working with um, seriously disabled uh, vets. And uh, and some active duty people, <clears throat> and um, Greg uh, uh, was being uh, mentored mm -hmm. by Ed, and mm -hmm. what's his wife's name? Uh, Kate. Kate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they would uh, Greg and the other counselors around the country. He was mostly working with guys at Joint Base Lewis and Cord. Um, and he didn't just have these severely wounded guys, but he also had uh, active duty people who mm -hmm. were dealing with um, terminal diseases. Mm -hmm. So they would go to Tampa, uh, where the Special Operations Command was, and and meet with Ed and Kate. Uh, and at one of these meetings, Ed mentioned that they wouldn't be meeting with them for a while because they were going to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And Greg then asked them, well, what's that all about? So they told him how they take these small groups of vets back. And he said, well, I've got this friend in Oregon. He should go on this trip. So next thing I know, um, I get this package in the mail um, from Ed. And I had to fill it out and, you know, I had to explain why I wanted to go back and what it would mean to me to be able to do it. So, in the, but I, I, in my cover letter, I told them that, you know, this is really cool and everything, but there's no way I can, I can't afford this. Because mm -hmm. you're talking about, you know, between airfare and, you know, hotel arrangements and everything else. You know, you're talking about, you know, I don't know, four or five thousand bucks probably. And um, next thing I know, I get a letter from Ed that says, well, you're going. We're paying for it. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, yeah. We 
had, you know, the distinct pleasure of working with Kate and Ed on a retreat where we actually had five five EOD technicians attend. And, um, you know, I think what drew us into his organization and philosophy was that in in dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder and so many other um, injuries, and we really appreciated the fact that he you know, called it what it was. And it, it's a, it's a wound on your soul, you know? Yeah. And, um, that was, that was pretty profound for us. And yeah. he taught us a lot. And, um, I know, I, I'm not sure, um, I haven't been in touch with Ed and, and Kate for a little while, but, uh, you know, they're, they're phenomenal people and it's a small yeah. world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you were telling the story about going back to Vietnam, I looked at Mike and, you know, was like, I bet he went with yeah. Ed Tick. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm so glad you had that experience and, and hopefully it provided some, you know, closure and also just, uh, it did. yeah, that's fantastic. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Um, well, Stu, we absolutely appreciate your time today and you sharing um, some stories from your life, and we we look forward to con- a continued friendship with you. And it's cool. um, it's been a pleasure, sir. And thank you so so much. And we hope you have a wonderful weekend. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Thank you, Stu. All right. All right. Well, you take care. All right, you guys. You guys too. Okay. And yeah, I look forward to hearing it when it's done. Okay, perfect. And Stu, just to let you know, I bought your book yesterday. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, no worries. No. Okay. All right. A, take care. Take care, Stu. You're okay, you guys. Bye. Right, bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.